Okay, so Nate and I were actually just talking about, once again, he cruised into town at 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And is here with me. What did you do last night? What show uh, were you at? I went to Bakersfield. Uh, I, Dead City Punks was there. Uh, what is it? Dead City Punks and the Dry so- Dry Sockets were there. So I don't. So I've I've seen Dead City. This is my second time seeing them. Um, and then because I I and Feed the Streets we tabled the show. Um, okay, yeah. So do you go to the show to watch the concert, or did you also bring a Narcan table? Yeah. Like- so I brought a Narcan table, and uh, we gave out. I gave out 150, 156 kits. So that's like. Over 300 doses of Narcan, around probably three, close to 300 test strips. How do you pick which shows to go set up tables? Is like, do you tend, because it tends to be a lot of punk shows that you're going to. Yeah. Is that because you like punk music or is that because you feel like there's more of a need for Narcan there or how is that happening? I, I, I fucking love punk music, right, but, okay, but, 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 but <laughs> that's besides the point. Okay. Um, they just reach out to me. So oh, okay, I, okay. I know people that know them or they know me and they reach out okay. or they like see Instagram and like, oh, you do shows? Like, will you come table a show? Just like word of mouth, honestly. You know what I mean? Who's doing it? Band managers or the venue manager? Uh, sometimes. It's usually it's usually people that know the band or, or like homies with them and they reach out to me. Is know? there that much of a need for Narcan that, that fans of a band are like, we're setting up the show, we're super stoked, oh shit, we need some Narcan? I, I think it's... I think it's more so that they just want to get it to the people because so many people have been affected by it. It's not so much that there is a need there, like going to be a need there, like in okay. the moment while at okay. the show. But I think it's more so that they want it for their, their fans or the people because they've lost someone. And okay. so they know that like I travel, like I'll mob up there yeah. and do it. And and that's what they want. And then I usually try to lace the venue with some Narcan too, or like whatever they want, and right? Just like to make sure, that, like, cause like I can't be there every time they have a show. But yeah. it's like, you know, this is for you. Like, just take. Yeah. It. Okay. Yeah. Crazy. And you got back at five in the morning. For reference, guys, Bakersfield is what like two hours from here. It's a little over. It's on the way to Vegas. It's it's like, it was two. No, 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 no. It was like it took me to like two and a half hours to get to LA. Oh my god! And then and then it's and Bakersfield like, is like, like forty five minutes away from there. No, it's like another two hours. No. Oh my god! Yeah, no. Like it's no. a four hour drive. Yeah. And you got back, and now you're doing the show. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing you're thirty <laughs> an hour because that's a lot of driving. I'm just committed. I know you're committed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. If right. I say I'm gonna do something, I do it. And yeah. Just like, whatever yeah. you know. That's, yeah. Okay, so speaking of being committed. Most of our listeners, hopefully you guys follow Narcan Nate. Yeah. If you do, you would have seen that he's posting often about there's a picture of what looks like colored pills and they're it's being claimed by various news outlets and various media, prominent media, reputable media, that fentanyl is being marketed to kids. Yeah. And you see Nate posting his views on this, which are passionate and fiery and that are the exact opposite. And again, you know so much more about this than I do. What is that post, and why is it in your mind problematic to present it that way? So here's the, so I think Ryan Marina pointed something out. Somebody pointed something out, but when they've looked it up, there, there's only like the stock images that the DEA has. Okay. And so I've not researched that. I've not really researched that that much. Okay. But that's I'm just pointing that out as as one thing. Um, and here's the other thing: colored drugs have different colored drugs have been around 
for a while. I mean, if we look at e-pills, I mean, they have Superman stamps on them and, you know, and things like that. And they're right. different colors. And that was to show, like, the different colors show the potency, what's in them, and so on and so forth. It was just a branding thing to show what was in them. Um, I mean, there's pink meth, for God's sakes. Are they marketing that to kids that like rock candy? I you saw know, pink meth one time. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, come yeah. on, man. Okay. And it's like, it makes... It, so it makes no – I mean, I sold drugs for almost a decade. You know right. what I mean? I, I sold drugs. And and it would make no sense for me to sell or to market fentanyl to kids because it is going to incapacitate them on the like the first time they ingest it. And then so the people, the very people that you build this brand and that you market, you're going to kill them and make right. no money. Okay. So, and there's so much evidence showing, like it's a. If I wanted to get kids addicted, I would, or wanted to make money off kids in general, I would go buy a bunch of kratom and flip it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like, so, like you're gonna kill them with fentanyl, or if I could find a bunch of like Percocets or Roxy Five, you know, that's what I would. Giving kids fentanyl who are right. have no opioid dependence is absolutely insane. Like you're gonna kill the whole market. So what's the danger? And and your whole point about why this is so upsetting is that they're fear-mongering, right? What's yeah. the danger in putting this out there? Well, it's it's good to know what's going on. It's good to know that drugs are different colors, and this is what it looks like. That's great. But I don't appreciate fear-mongering propaganda. Like, that, that type of shit is the reason why I have to go cop a bag of fentanyl to show people that you can't die by touching it. You know, and, and and that's the reason, like, I wonder how many people have died because they put out that misinformation that if you inhale fentanyl or someone overdoses on fentanyl and you're in the vicinity, you can die from passive exposure. Like, I wonder how many people have right. died because of that. And I don't appreciate that. Right. And I don't appreciate them not retracting information because this is people's lives. Like, I've lost a lot of friends that I really fucking care about. And I'm not going to put up with that shit. Like, I don't I'm going to call it for what it is. So... Your point is that the more fear you put out yeah. around it, the yeah. more people you actually put at risk in the long term. Yeah, and, okay. and it's and it's like it's not okay to to scare the shit out of people. Right. It's not okay to go be scaring parents about something that's not happening. Yeah, it, that's not okay. Yeah, and then it's gonna further perpetuate the war on drugs, which is exactly the reason why we're in the situation that we're in. And so, I don't appreciate that either. Because you, and I read this in a comment that you made yesterday on Instagram, yeah. actually. You were yeah. having an exchange. And yeah. I like the way you put it. You said, there's punitive measures, and we've been asking for a public health response yeah. because punitive measures don't work, right? Yeah. So, like, what would a public health response look like versus the war on drugs? That would be <clears throat> universal health care, a safe supply, fully funded evidence-based harm reduction approach, access to resources, um, housing first, Things okay. of that nature. Yeah. yeah. And we've never done that but no. as policy? I don't know anything no. about this. We've never, not even close. Okay. Not even close. Right. Okay. Interesting. But we want to push punitive measures. And punitive measures have never stopped, quote unquote, crime for profit. It's ne It's never stopped it. And, and it's I mean, in like the Philippines, if you're a drug user. They'll kill you, right? They'll, they'll straight kill your ass. And they've been doing that since, two, I want to say 2016. I could be wrong. And guess what? It's... 2022 and they're still killing people you know so and their levels of drug use have not gone down i'm not really sure the statistics i mean okay. it, i mean i mean it fluctuates you know i'm sure it fluctuates right. I, I couldn't tell you that but i just know that they're still having to kill people right yeah know? yeah because people are still using drugs right people have always used drugs right yeah okay 
Well, thank you for explaining that. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. No, it totally does. Yeah. It totally does. And that's one of the reasons why I have you on the show. Yeah. You know a lot more about this than I do. Yeah. I don't know anything about this. Really quickly, we want to do the review of the week. We got a good one this week. And we'll do the social media shout out of the week. So here's our review of the week. Yeah, so this is from Tennessee Strong. I think that's Tennessee Strong. Uh, it says, I can't thank you enough. And the guests you have on your show that share their journey with addiction has helped me so much and opened my eyes to that to to a lot that I feel has been so useful in understanding my daughter. She's thirty eight days clean today, and these stories give me so much, such hope for her. Well, thank you. I love that we got a review from a family member. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, that I is. hope that we do give you guys hope. You know, because there is too. hope if the person's alive. There's hope. There is. Yeah. You know? I really believe that. Yeah. I do too. I do too. Which is why you feel so strongly about keeping people alive. Yeah. You know. 100%. Yeah. I mean, you just people change. You know. Yeah, it's, they do it's, it's a process. It's not. I, no one gets to determine what that process looks like. Right. For me. I think that was my favorite part of Tracy's episode last yeah. week when she said. Changes are happening. They're just so incremental that we don't notice them. Yeah. And I think that that's so true. Yeah. And what, she was, what is it? There's like the seven steps to change. There's some There's some process that breaks down like the... the it breaks well, there's like pre-contemplation, contemplation. Yeah, yeah, I don't that, know if that's, that's what you that, mean. Yeah, that's exactly but yeah. what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 When we get her back, I'll ask her about that. Because yeah. she actually spoke about that in her book too. Yeah. Um, okay, guys. And then for social media, shout out of the week. This is from TikTok. She follows me. Scrap Crafty Jess. It's the handle, Scrap Crafty Jess. And a month ago, so she she's followed me for a while. We've communicated. But also about a month ago, she was like, hey, you haven't posted in a while. Where are you? And I feel like when you follow recovery content creators and they disappear, it's always like, oh, shit. Like, I've thought that before, too. Now, I just had all that crap going on with the studio. So I wasn't, I'm not on TikTok nearly as much as I was during, like, the COVID times. But I still appreciated it. And then she commented on the NDPE, and then also she was really excited about Tracy Helton's episode. So, Scrap Crafty Jess, thank you so much for, you know, being a listener. Yeah, appreciate thank, it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm also now coming off of, you know, using this, these substances that have masked some deep-rooted emotional, mental, and like spiritual pain in my life for years. And it was the first time in my life, I mean, that I could have remembered at that time that I was fully naked, like emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Like the mask of addiction came off, the mask of trying to get girls' attention to, to give me validation came off, the mask of uh, selling drugs, and I can go on and on with all these masks that came off, but I just, I had, there was nowhere to go. It was just me versus me. And I couldn't act out like I was used to because if I had acted out, I would have gone to solitary confinement. I would have gotten the shit beaten out of me. Um, I would have potentially done something to get my time extended. So there was there was no room for that. And the, the feeling that I think might resonate most with people, especially if they are on the other side of addiction, is when I was going through my detox, one of the symptoms that was really bad for me was like the jitteriness and you feel like you're trying to crawl out of your own skin like it's oh, it's yeah. unlike any type of anxiety you will ever imagine you literally feel like there's something inside of you that's trying to leave and as i look back now i guess in a more spiritual way i think it was like the old me like trying to leave my body so that i could become new to make space for that
Hey guys, thank you so much. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Heroin. Now we've become, we've been chatting recently, and so he thinks this is funny, but I was very intimidated to ask Doug to be on the show. <laughs> I was! I was really intimidated, which he laughs at. But anyways, my name's Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. My name is uh, Narkin Nate. Um, an addict in recovery. My recovery date is October 28th, 2018. You're coming up. Yeah. On your four years. Yeah, four years is coming up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And today we have the host of the Adversity Advantage podcast. He has written three books. And like I said, I was super intimidated to ask him, but he turns out to be like the nicest guy and has been super helpful. It's been so super nice to have a contact in this space too. You know what I mean? Where you and I can kind of like bounce ideas off each other. Um, but introduce yourself. Say hi. So thank you so much for the, the kind words. And it was just funny, like you said, like you were like, oh my gosh, I was so intimidated to ask you. And it's just kind of, I mean, it means a lot, but it also kind of makes me giggle because I, I, I kind of just think of myself as just like a normal dude who's just been able to kind of make it through. And, and so my name is Doug Bobes and I've been in recovery since October 21st, um, 2008. So coming up, I guess, on about 14 years. Wow. And you want to get right into it? Yeah, just just start with where you're from. I know you're, like I said off air, you're such a well-versed speaker. I know you kind of know how to tell your story. So just, yeah, lay it out for us. I mean, I'll make it a bit different. So okay. born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, in the greater Baltimore, Maryland area. And as I look back at my addiction story, I just feel like there was this massive recipe for disaster that was just lurking throughout my childhood. And the reason that, that I say that is because I didn't have any healthy coping skills. I didn't know how to manage stress. I didn't know how to deal with anxiety. I didn't know how to deal with any of like the trauma that was going on in my life. And the trauma for me was my parents getting divorced when I was five years old and getting divorced at a time, this is back in the early nineties, where families weren't as separated, I guess, as they are now. Like the divorce rate, I think is significantly higher today than it was then. And so a lot of my friends, their parents were still together. And I was starting to question myself, like, why am I going from house to house? And my friends aren't doing that. And so early on, I started to develop a what's wrong with me mentality, which ended up um, cementing itself in this victim mindset, which we'll get into later. But so I started to develop this what's wrong with me mentality and why am I so different at a young age? And then on top of that, I loved sports. Like we, I just mentioned before we recorded that I was just taking a, a little hiatus from watching football because I, I love I love watching sports. I love playing sports. I, I, as a kid, I liked collecting sports cards and um, I'm kind of dating myself, but I would stay up late to watch like sports center on ESPN and I would get up early to watch sports center on ESPN before, before the, the internet became what it is today. But the problem was I was the most uncoordinated, unathletic person that there was. So I was, the kid who had the same amount of passion as my friends when it came to sports, but I never made like the special travel teams. I was cut um, from sports teams in high school. I was always picked last in gym class. So again, this what's wrong with me mentality, this victim mentality, this like, why am I different mentality, which we all know like often leads to addiction in many ways because we are just so, um, afraid of being who we are inside and, and so afraid of looking at some of our insecurities and our, the level of discomfort that we're embracing that we often turn to drugs to numb that pain. And then throughout like middle school and, and high school, 
I had started to, to, to gain some weight at a, at a young age. It was actually like earlier, I think, that before middle school, I started to develop like a little bit of a belly because looking back, I think maybe I, I used food to numb pain as I, I look back because I would always like eat like a little bit more of the, the un, quote unquote unhealthy foods that, that us kids all ate. And I remember just developing this level of excitement every time I was getting ready to eat something unhealthy. And it, it felt very comforting at that time. And so I start to gain a little bit of weight and now I'm wearing like husky pants and bigger clothes. And so again, it's like, what's wrong with me? Why aren't my friends gaining weight? Why am I gaining weight? So this all starts to add up. And then when I'm in middle school or high school, I start getting bullied and I started to um, get told that I looked like I had down syndrome. And I was, and I was a lot heavier than I am now. And my face was a lot puffier and people started to say this stuff about me and people would laugh at me. And I started to internalize all that. And I didn't believe that I had that, so to speak. But I also was like, why are these kids saying this stuff to me? Like, I was the nicest kid growing up. Like, I wasn't a kid who started a lot of trouble or wanted to, like, fight the kids. Or I wasn't super aggressive. I was always, like, the nice kid who was kind of goofy and just kind of wanted to be friends with everybody. But I was like, why are these people making fun of me like this? And then girls would kind of, you know, gang up on me too. And then I never had a girlfriend in, in grade school. And I was always intimidated of girls in grade school because I, I got picked on by some of them. And then like the ones that I was interested in, they weren't interested in me. So I just was like, man, I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. Like, what's the point of even trying to get a girlfriend? So now I have this massive like balloon, I guess, if you will, of insecurities, like what's wrong with me mentality that was really just ready to burst at the first moment that it was able to. And I know that like pot now, there's so many layers to pot, right? I feel weird sometimes telling my story when it comes to pot because it's like legal now, like I'm in a lot of places. Right. But I never thought that me taking this first hit off the marijuana pipe when I was 14 would lead to me being incarcerated on felony drug charges. Like nobody thinks that way because if, if that were the case and it was like a plus B equals C like a is you, you do the, you smoke pot, you know, B is you start to develop like a habit to it and then C you end up in jail. Like nobody, I don't think anybody, I think a lot less people I sh I'll say would do pot would start smoking pot. Like I did. And when I first got offered this hit off the marijuana pipe, I think like many, I felt this sense of relief. I felt this massive monkey come off my back and I didn't have to worry about all these insecurities that I had had. I didn't have to worry about what the girls were going to say to me. I didn't have to worry about my family dynamics. I didn't have to worry about school, athletics, my looks, none of that. Like that balloon that I talked about slowly began to like deflate. And as it began to deflate, I started to not only feel better about myself, but I also started to develop a habit to pot. And my parents, after they got divorced, my parents' relationship just wasn't good. I mean, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. They hardly ever communicated. And like, and it wasn't like, I was like, man, like, am I going to have like relationships like this when I grow up? Like, I wasn't thinking like that. Now I look back and I can see why my fear of relationships stemmed from that. But what I saw during that time is there was constant tension. There was constant fighting. And people were always stressed. And on top of that, I was now contributing to that stress because my mom and my parents, you know, people had slowly started to find out that I was smoking pot. 
And I was, I was doing dumb stuff too. Like I, I take full responsibility for some of the stuff that I did. I was having, I was exposing my brothers to it. I was having them help me out with, yeah, I remember like even like having my one brother like light a pipe or a bomb or something. It was so long ago. I don't remember what the device was, but getting involved with it with me. And I started to sell a little bit on the side too, because at the time, like, I don't, I think it was like 20 bucks for a gram back in the day. Like when I first started like getting high and I, you know, when you're making five, six, seven dollars an hour, whatever I was making at my minimum wage job back then, it's hard to support this habit that I had started to develop where now the gram became two grams and three grams and four grams. And so I would like buy at this point now I'm buying an eighth of weed, selling a couple grams to make my money back and then be able to smoke a gram for free. I think people who are listening to this or watching this or however they're consuming it, if they've ever smoked pot, like I think this is pretty familiar when you develop a habit that you're always trying to manipulate and find yourself a way to smoke for free. So I started to do that. And then I was like, wow, like, this is cool. Like I'm actually like not spending any money. And on top of that, like I'm buying like bigger quantities of pot and now I'm becoming friends with these people and more liked in the community. Like this feels really good. But I had this massive insecurity that I haven't like really touched on, but I think people can assume that I did. I had this and that I wanted to fit in. Like, and I would do whatever I could to fit in because I saw these kids who had what I wanted. I had, I saw these kids who made the sports teams. I saw these kids who had the girlfriend. I saw these kids that were just a lot happier than me. And I was like, well, what are they doing? Well, some of the stuff they were doing was thriving in sports and, and doing stuff in school and that sort of thing. But on the other side of it, on the weekends, they were either going to parties, having parties, getting high and that sort of thing. But my parents never left like town. There was never a point where they were like, yeah, we're going to go out of town. Just stay here. I trust you. And then, you know, <laughs> what happens then is the, I would have had a party. My mom, when I was 15, ends up going into the hospital to have a hysterectomy. And I ended up, my mom lived in a townhouse. Ironically, like she lived like five streets down from where I currently live now. And so I somehow like, well, like somehow created some lie that I was of where I was actually going to be staying that it wasn't with my dad or wasn't with her. And I, I forget how I even worded it, but it was something where I had convinced them that I was good and not going to go there. Well, I happened to leave like the, like a window that I knew she wouldn't check unlocked. <laughs> and when she went in the hospital, I snuck in and like a, a ton of kids come into my mom's townhouse with beer, drugs, like everything. And of course, like the dumbest thing you could possibly do, I think as a kid, one of them is have a party in a townhouse where you've right. got neighbors <laughs> on each side of you. It's loud as crap. It's not like there was, there was never going to be any kind of quietness in that house. Um, and I think that neat what I wanted the most out of those situations was I wanted to fit in and look cool and look like that I could somehow mold myself into that person that I wanted to be in for, far as as far as those friend groups so make a long story short cops come bust bust the party I end up running and you know I end up obviously getting caught and so that created a lot of tension between my mom and I and as that that, that tension started to get worse I started to act out behave more radically. And on my 16th birthday, I was still selling some pot, like I was saying, to support my habit, maybe make a little bit of money at this point. And my my little brother, my brother who was right under, underneath of me was 
um, at this point was like kind of like in, somewhat interested in, in the pot thing, but I, I kind of felt bad about getting him involved. And I was just like, dude, like, no, you're not coming to get high with me on my birthday. Cause you know, I was 16. So I was going to go get high and get some ice cream. You know, it's like a typical thing. I was like, but like, can you watch the door? So mom doesn't come in here while I'm weighing out this pot. <laughs> and sure enough, in walks my mom catches <laughs> me with the pot. And I was like, what the heck? But <laughs> that night she kicked me out like permanently. I mean, I haven't lived with my mom since. And I went to, to live with my dad and my dad, if you, if you had known about the relationship that my dad and I had at that point, you know, you would have understood why I felt so betrayed, scared, angry, resentful. Like I said stuff to a mother that you'd never want to hear as a mom ever. And it changed that, that night permanently changed the relationship with my mom permanently and I like get emotional talking about this because I think we live in this this world where especially in like the recovery community where you're, you're supposed to make peace with your past and you're supposed to like say no regrets and I believe in all that but I think there's some things that happen that change us permanently emotionally yeah that sometimes we could just we just can't um come to terms with like we can't like recollect we can't and I think it was just this combination of I was developing emotionally because the timing of it and where my mom was at like we just didn't have much communication after that for like for years as far as a mother and, and son go yeah. and so I lost a lot of the emotional development with um, as far as the relationship with my mom at that point and so I changed high schools that next day and went to go live with my dad full-time and I went from a high school here like right by where I live now which was pretty preppy and it was in a kind of a suburban area to a full like full out like rural high school where it's um like drive your tractor to school day everyone's like got a pickup truck like everyone's changing their own oil and I'm like up there in like a pink shirt and like Jordan I'm, like super preppy you know I'm dressed like super preppy and I'm like, whoa, what did I just walk into? I picture you as an Abercrombie guy. Were you Abercrombie in high school? Kind of? Um, kind of. A little but that, bit. You know what? That wasn't as much of a thing, huh? Because you're younger than me. So maybe that wasn't as much of a thing. Well, Abercrombie was a thing. Okay. Polo was a big thing back Polo. then. Okay. Um, Hollister. But I like a lot of those clothes, though, were like form-fitting. You know what right. I mean? Right, yeah. meant to like fit people that were in shape. Yeah. I wasn't really in shape at the time. But I think going back my, my parents intentions of doing what they did as far as kicking me out and set, shipping me to my dad's at a time where like addiction wasn't as well I guess well known as it is now as far as like there wasn't as much education people weren't talking about it nearly as much it was way more stigmatized and specific, especially pot I mean I'm talking this is back in 2003 right this was like 20 years ago or yeah almost 20 years ago I guess yeah. right and so they, they thought that they could just pull me out of my environment, change schools, change friends, change communities, like all these things. And I'd be good. Well, no, because now it's like created so much more pain in my life. And now I still have to fulfill these insecurities somehow. And so I did that through making new friends, almost like I was always, I, the people thought I was a narc when I first got there because I was like, Hey, like, I know where to get weed. Like you want some, <laughs> oh, that's like, the worst thing you can do. They're like, wait, what? This dude's a narc. <laughs> that's the worst thing you can do. Oh, but, I was just, but I genuinely 
like had connections yeah do stuff and i just was trying to fit in and make friends and i eventually they, they saw that i wasn't an art made some friends but again i was i was still bullied i was still picked on i was still made fun of a lot and and, and just made my way through it and but just kept kept on going on the path of addiction with with pot yeah and would continue to just smoke a lot i mean i got to the point like where i was smoking like a quarter ounce a day like a lot of weed at that time and i barely graduated high school because all my friends and i would do was ride around like rip bong hits wouldn't go to class we'd be just listening to music and, and that was like the thing and then we would somehow figure out a way to not get caught coming back into school but we we always kind of in a way would like we became friendly with the at the time there was a cop that was at the school i don't know what the setup's like now but there was always like a cop that was like there it was just making sure nobody was doing anything stupid and because i barely graduated high school and because i i guess my grades weren't as good as they could have been because i was a smart kid i didn't get into some of the colleges that i thought i was going to get into that and then my I didn't, my, my parents didn't have any money, I guess, for, um, for college, or I didn't, I guess I was just too lazy to, to fill out some of the stuff that would have gotten me into some potentially some of the financial programs. And, and so I was like, all right, well, I might as well just go further down this path of addiction because I need to feel good about myself. I need validation. I need to continue to fit in with this crowd. And that was like a thing. And I don't think this gets talked about enough in the addiction community is that I think the most addicting thing, one of them is, is people and people, we get addicted to the community of people that we run around with. And we feel like this sense of meaning and closeness and loyalty, loyalty to these people that even though like, like even me, like, you, you know, that like, you're not making the right decisions deep down, you still like are timid and scared of, of leaving that flock or that crowd, if you will, because of what they're going to say to you. And especially if you grew up in a broken home, like I did where that filled that void that I didn't have at the time were, were these relationships. And so after I, I graduated high school, I, I started to sell pot now to make money. Like it wasn't just me getting high. It was like, all right, I need to make some money. Like I'm not going to school. Like I, I'm just tired of all the BS with my parents. Like I got to survive on my own because I was kicked out of my house shortly after high school as well. I kicked out of my dad's house. And and so as you start to now sell more pot and sell more drugs, you kind of move up the hierarchy of, of drugs. It's like this weird system where like, I didn't see eye to eye anymore with the kids who were just smoking like a gram a day. I was like, ah, eh, they're not cool enough for me. They can't get me what I need. They, they don't have access to like quantities of pot. Like they don't um, relate to what I'm doing now. So just like anything, I started to, to make new friends that were doing other things. And I got introduced to cocaine and cocaine and me had this funny relationship because on paper, cocaine would have been perfect for me because I was insecure, unconfident, you know, kind of depressed, you know, had no like will to do much. And so you would think that you just snort a bunch of coke and that'll like bring me back to some level of baseline to be able to do some of these things that I couldn't do. The problem was I had like crippling anxiety too. And coke and, and anxiety just don't go well together. And so I did, but I did develop like a, a Coke habit where, you know, I, I snorted the first line of Coke and I just like a lot of people do. I felt this insane rush of euphoria that I was like, wow, I can do anything I want now. And then you come down and you get to do more. And so that became addicting. And then I was de developed the habit to that. And I ended up doing like a 
eight ball Coke a day or something. And it finally caught up with me because I had this crippling anxiety. And one night I was riding around. I was actually, where was I? I was going back to, I'd been like at this point, like after I graduated high school, I was kicked out of my dad's house and I was bouncing around from my friend's couch to couch to couch in my friend's houses. And I'd found like a place that was somewhat more permanent at my buddy's house. And he had, I believe, just gone off to college, but his family was like, all right, you can stay here, stay on the couch, but we need you to kind of find a place to live because he's not here anymore. And of course, it was kind of awkward. <laughs> and I was coming home and I was super high and I felt my face go numb, like completely like more numb than normal from like Coke and stuff. And I felt like my heart rate started getting these weird pains and tingliness. And I was like, fuck. Like, am I dying? Like, I really thought I was I was having a heart attack because at that point I'd also we'd also buried some friends and gone to some funerals for people we knew. So I wouldn't have put it past me to, to overdose. And I get back to my friend's house where I was staying. And I remember like walking into his house and be like, we need to go to the hospital right now. I think I'm dying. And of course, you can imagine a reaction. His mom looks at me and is like, huh? Like what? No, you're like, Doug, you're you're all right, you're fine. And I'm like, no, I think I'm dying. So we go to the emergency room. I, I walk in screaming, help, help, I'm dying. And they're like, sir, oh, no. like, please sit down. Like, you're okay. And I'm like, help. So sir, sit down. So <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Oh, God. <laughs> and I finally get taken back into a room and they've got like the sensors and stuff like hooked up to me. And they start asking me like about like what's going on. And I kind of tell them what's, what's up. And, and they were like, well, for somebody who's doing what you're doing, you have a really good heart like a good, strong heart and your vitals are good. They're like, I think you might've just had a panic attack or something. And I didn't know what a panic attack was like that. Again, like this stuff wasn't talked about back then. Like there was, it wasn't like cool to share about mental health. Like it is right. now. And I ended up having to buy a book on like how to calm yourself down after a panic attack that I would bring with me while I was with my friends, oh. because now I had developed some weird phobia that, <laughs> Every now I'm like, all right, every time I smoke or I get do any kind of drug, I'm going to get a panic attack. And so what would happen? I would get a panic attack. Mm-hmm. I'd have to pull over my car. My friends would have to drive. I mean, and I guess I kind of understand why they make fun of me because it, it was kind of like funny at the time when nobody understood what was going on. And until you've had a panic attack, you nobody will understand like what, what that what that's like. Yeah. And they would be like, Doug, just read your book. You're going to be okay. And I, <laughs> I laugh now because again, like, I think it's just important to to laugh about this stuff and like under have some understanding, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you would think at that moment that that would be a good idea to say, you know what, Doug, it's time to, to change. It's time to get your shit together. It's time to find some new friends. Might be time to get a job. And I wanted that. Like I wanted to change. I wanted to get better. I just didn't know how. I didn't have the self-confidence to think that I could manage my life without any of that. And I also didn't feel like I really had many true real connections in my life other than some of my friends. And then my, my grandparents have always been there for me. my dad's parents have always been there for me throughout this entire process. Like unapologetically, they've always shown up for me and I owe them my life. And, and so you would have thought that I would have made this, this change but what's what's easier is it easier to you know completely change all your habits change your friends 
changed professions because I was a drug dealer at the time and completely go that route? Or has it been easier to just stay on that path and find a way to deal? And that's where Oxycontin came in. That's where opiates came in, which, which almost killed me. Um, as I, as I kind of look back on it and one of my friends, I was like 18, 19 years old, something like that, offered me a five milligram Percocet and the same monkey that came off my back from smoking pot came off my back again with Oxy. And, and on top of that, I could now get high with my friends and not have a panic attack as long as I was high on Oxy. And I was like, holy crap, I've solved it. Like this is How amazing. They figured out yeah. the perfect yeah. concoction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, I honestly, like I, it just like as addicts do, I think you try to rationalize and justify anything. And I was like, well, I'm not doing heroin. So it's all good. Like this is man-made and blah, blah, blah. And, and actually like people get prescribed these. So that's cool. And so I was like, I'm going to be good. I'll be fine. And I didn't realize, um, I knew that, I mean, I knew that painkillers were addicting. I didn't realize how fast I would get addicted. Right. And I don't want to sit here and, and, and while I know the pharmaceutical industry has had their stuff and but I don't want to sit here and, and kind of blame them for my addiction because I was doing it willingly to get high. And I knew what I was getting myself into. I just didn't know how fast I, that I would get addicted to them. And I didn't, because I mean, at that point, I'm like, I know I wasn't eating spinach. Like I knew I was crushing up a pill and snorting it up my nose. Like that right. couldn't have been good. And five milligrams turned into 10, 20, and then all the way up to where I was doing like three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin every single day in my nose and it progressed like and i think initially you experiment with like the five milligram or seven and a half milligram like hydrocodone pills that are just loaded with like filler and then you kind of get sick of like the filler getting stuck in your nose so that progressed into like the branded like the holy grail like the oc and then whatever milligram whether it was 40 i mean 40s and 80s were like the two most popular ones that i did mostly 80s towards the later stages of my addiction and you knew it was always going to be a good night when you looked down at like your white t-shirt and you looked like you just went to paint night because you got like the different colors of time release, like licked off on your shirt. <laughs> and, and so it got to the point where I was doing like hundreds of milligrams a day to support my habit. And I could barely get out of bed without, you know, snorting 150, 160 milligrams a day. And just to give people an idea of how bad off I was, I didn't take a shit for a month. Oh, <laughs> I know what that's like. I, I, no, I, I, listen, I know. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, I know. Ladies, I'm single. You know, just yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> things can get really interesting. <laughs> that was a long time ago. But, and then like half my left nostril was, was missing. Oh no. Because it was so corroded from like just snorting so much. I would snort anything. Like I would snort. I like even had to take Tylenol. I'm like, well, might as well snort it. Like, right. you know what I mean? And, and I think that all, um, it, it, it sounds kind of weird, but it, it like messed with my ability to be a good drug dealer because now it doesn't I'm, sound I'm weird eating, to me at all. <laughs> I'm eating away at all of my profits because yeah. people were like, man, you must have so much money saved. I'm like, well, no. yeah. profits yeah. are going into, to strip clubs, um, food and, opiates at, the, yeah. at that time and so no and if you began you begin to make sloppy decisions selling drugs you begin to like lend money or lend drugs to somebody because you're trying to make a quick sale to get more money to, to buy more drugs and then that yeah. becomes this slippery slope where where now you're getting burned and now you're not getting paid on time and now i'm having trouble with you know people in, in the hierarchy of the my drug dealing world and 
everything kind of came to a to a head for me on Cinco de Mayo of 2008. And addiction's this like, it's just weird, like religion, like cult-like thing sometimes where you don't care about anything but addiction it, to, when you're in the thick of it. Like you don't give a crap about your family. You don't care about like what you're, if you're doing, what you're doing is moral. You don't care about your health. You don't care about anything except like, what drug you're going to do, what's the music you're going to listen to when you're high, where are you going to eat, who do you have to manipulate, where are you going to get more of it, like, where are you going to, where are you going to do the drugs, like, who are you doing, like, all these things that it just becomes this weird, like, cult-like religion that you are just so focused on that it, it just, it just captures your full attention for every single moment of every single day, and I had a busted headlight in my car, that I had had been meaning to, and I should have fixed like months before Cinco de Mayo, but I didn't care about anything that didn't support, enhance, or revolve around my addiction. So the busted headlight didn't fit with into that equation. And so that night I was going to make a drug deal with a few of my friends, had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars in cash in the glove box. And Cinco de Mayo, which at the time, I guess, was news to me is one of the biggest drinking nights of the year. So I guess there was a cop either running radar or doing like a sobriety checkpoint. And I decided it would be a great idea to flash my high beams at this police officer to hide the fact. To hide the, the, to hide the Popeye. I get it. <laughs> yeah, to hide the busted, the busted headlight. But, I, I, and I, but in that time, I kind of just gave him a reason to pull me over. Right. And so, of course, lights are on, pulls me over. My heart sinks into the pit of my stomach. And at that point, I was like, man, my life is over. Like, it's just, it's done. Like, they're going to find everything. I'm going to go to jail and that's it. And a lot of that did happen. Obviously, my life isn't over, but I get pulled over. I kind of scramble to get my license and registration out to hand to the police officer. One thing leads to the next. He ends up pulling me out of the car. And ironically, like he, I think he, I, I believe he asked me if he could search it. And I said, yes. And it's like subconsciously, I think I just wanted to get caught. Like I, I needed to get caught. Like I didn't change the headlight. I ran, I, I, I had a bunch of drugs in my car, which I shouldn't have had a scale cop asked you to search the car. He said, yes. It was like these things subconsciously that were going on that I guess I was like looking to just get caught. And I'm, in the, I'm, I'm arrested, put in the back of this, pol this police car and I remember just sitting there and I'm sure that people listening to this, they've had situations like this where like a lot of like bad decisions start to stack up and all of a sudden things come to a head and you're like, what the hell just happened? Like, how did I get here? Like, how did this kid who just wanted to be loved, how did this kid who just wanted to fit in, how did this kid who just wanted to be good at sports, like how did this kid end up in the back of a, of a cop car in handcuffs facing felony drug charges? And a lot of it, I would say, if not all of it, was my inability to manage my emotions, my inability to deal with stress, my inability to take any responsibility for my behavior and make changes in my life that I knew I should have made. And, and just because I felt that those changes were hard and that they were um, unattainable, it didn't justify me going further down that the path, right? And so I get taken to jail, um, I'm arrested, and the charge was um, possession with intent to distribute marijuana, which is a felony. And 
my dad bailed me out the next day. Like I got arrested Cinco de Mayo. The funny thing, I guess this is funny, but my little brothers who came to pick me up with my dad, his birthday was, was May 6th. So he came with my dad to pick me up. He's like, happy birthday to me. And I'm like, hey man, it's like happy birthday. <laughs> and when you when you're um charged with a felony, you now you don't go to district court, you go to circuit court because you have to get arraigned and it's a different process and end up going to court. And by the way, like again, like I think people who maybe don't understand addiction would assume that. I would just clean my life up at that point and be like, you know what, like, I'm just going to do what I can and get, get good for court. I'm going to make sure I pass these drug tests. I'm going to get a job and do all these things to make sure that I'm in good standing. But as addicts, like if you've become addicted to numbing trauma and pain and all these things that I was doing, I had to continue on that path because now I'm like, shit, I'm going to go to jail. Like, I mean, screw like my parents getting divorced or being bullied. Like that's trauma. I get it. And that's painful, but I'm going to freaking jail. Like that's yeah. way scarier. Right. <laughs> and, and I just continued like doing, making like really poor decisions after that with my addiction and, and drug use and went to court September 30th, 2008. And at the time I thought the judge threw the book at me because he convicted, found me guilty of the felony. I mean, it was clear as day I was guilty. I mean, you got a half a pound of pot and money in a scale. It's like easy. Hello. Like it's super easy to be like, yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> and, um, and he sentenced me to five years in jail, but he suspended everything but 90 days. Meaning if I had failed a drug test, if I had, you know, not followed through on um, some of the stipulations he gave me, if I caught another charge, like any of that sort of thing, I could have gone back and potentially served the full five years. And then on top of that, he gave me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looked at me and he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20. I'm going to cut you a deal. I'm like, deal? I'm like, what? Like, where's the deal? Like, I'm going to jail. I got five years of probation. I'm doing all this community service. Like, what, what's the deal? Is there something I'm missing? He's like, you're young, you're 20. This felony conviction is going to haunt you the rest of your life. Because again, this is back in 2008 where things were much more stigmatized than they are today. And he was like, if you complete everything without messing up, no misprobation appointments, you don't fail any drug tests, you do your time in jail, you do all the things that like I wanted you to do, you fulfill that. I'll take the felony conviction off your record and give you a PBJ at the end of the of the end of the five of your five years of probation. And I was just like, What's a PBJ? Right, like, probation before judgment. So it's just so okay. I wouldn't, I would never, no longer be a quote unquote convicted felon. Right. Okay. So it's like it. before judgment. Okay. And I was just like, all right, like what's, what's, what is, what does this even matter? Like, I didn't expect to, to, to see my 25th birthday. I didn't. And he gave me a few weeks to gather my belongings. And like, I guess it's just tie up some loose ends and ended up reporting to jail a week after my 21st birthday, which was October uh, a little over a week after my 21st birthday, October 21st, 2008. And I know you, you read my book and you understood some of the fears that I had going into that. Um, and then on, on top of that, on top of all the fears, the insecurities, the just, I mean, I was mortified. I had this horrific opiate addiction to kick. I did want to ask you that because it didn't yeah. say much about that in your book. Cause I want to talk about your jail experience because it's yeah, yeah. super important and your cellmate who helped you. Did you kick in jail? Did you have to kick when you got there? Because you don't even mention that. But did you get sick when you were there? Yeah, yeah, okay. three okay. weeks straight. Okay, okay. Um, and it was like having the worst case of the flu. 
for sure yeah yeah you know what i mean anybody i would imagine your audience a good bit of them understand what it's like to detox off opiates yes um cold turkey and it was horrible and i think the worst part of it was that i'm in jail like there's no i mean there's no one there to kind of coddle me there was no one to like bring me like a certain type of food i might have wanted there was no one um that, that i could go to that i felt comfortable with i guess when i first got there right can't smoke oh you can't do oh, anything yeah. so yeah. And I, I'm like coming off a lot. I'm coming off drugs, coming off, coming off cigarettes. And I'm also coming off um, a, a lot of, I'm also now coming off of, you know, using this, these substances that have masked some deep rooted emotional, mental, and like spiritual pain in my life for years. And it was the first time in my life, I mean, that I could have remembered at that time that I was fully naked, like emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, like the mask of addiction came off the mask of trying to get girls attention to, to give me validation came off the mask of uh, selling drugs and I can go on and on with all these masks that came off, but I just, I had there was nowhere to go. It was just yeah. me versus me. And I couldn't act out like I was used to because if I had acted out, I would have gone to solitary confinement. I would have gotten the shit beaten out of me. Um, I would have potentially done something to get my time extended. So there was there was no room for that. And the, the feeling that I think might resonate most with people, especially if they are on the other side of addiction, is when I was going through my detox, one of the symptoms that was really bad for me was like the jitteriness and you feel like you're trying to crawl out of your own skin. Like it's, oh, it's yeah. unlike any type of anxiety oh. you will ever imagine. You literally feel like there's something inside of you that's trying to leave. And as I look back now, I guess in a more spiritual way, I think it was like the old me, like trying to leave my body so that I could become new to make space for that. And the reason I say that is because my soon to be cellmate, was um by the way like the the if you want to get into some funny jail stories i think i told you i tell you some funny tell some funny jail stories of how much of an idiot i was in jail <laughs> well because i told you i i told you some of the dumb shit i did right when that yeah, lady yeah, 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 talked yeah. to me i haven't even shared some of this stuff on the oh this is good i'll do an episode one day where <laughs> i tell you what happened to me in jail because i had no idea what i was doing because there's like all these rules right and the i didn't politics, know the rules yeah. yeah man so i broke all the fucking rules thank god this <laughs> woman was nice to me but yeah. uh and you there's like and i'm sure when i tell some of this stuff and like the girls are gonna listen like no wonder this idiot didn't have a girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> so, so. yeah what did you do what did you fuck up what, what, well, like, what I'll, I'll just share one of the stories that i think okay. I'm, I'm, I'm most comfortable I mean, the other one wasn't that bad, but this is just, I guess, just, just, just kind of funny. Yeah. So there's, there's like rules in jail, right? Yeah. Like I didn't go in there with a handbook though, of like how to survive jail. There's like, right. I didn't get the idiot's guide of how to survive your first time in jail before I went in there. But there's like certain rules. And one of the rules is there's bunks in the cells and the person who's been there the longest gets the bottom bunk. Right. And the person and the newbie gets the top bunk because the, the top bunk, as I remember, it wasn't the easiest to get up, especially for a guy like me who was 50 pounds heavier than I am now and, you know, could barely stand on one leg without falling at the time, you know? And I was also like pretty weak from coming off the opiates. And I went into my first cell and the guy who was um, sharing a cell with me was, I guess, was out either 
watching TV, playing playing a game or something. And I decide I'm gonna crawl into his bed. Oh, no, and just lay down and take god. a nap. Oh, oh no. my god! And I thankfully for I those of you that have never been to jail, that's a really big yeah, deal. Yeah, that's that's what happened when he came oh, back. Oh god, he was pissed, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like what the heck? God. But people. People knew there was like something like off with me because I walked right. in there, I was a complete zombie. I was so scared. I, right. I just didn't really know what I what I was doing in there. But I still got kicked out of the cell. Like I, he was like, "All right, dude, you're out." Like this is, <laughs> this is so disrespectful. <laughs> and so then, like, you know, two cellmates later, I now meet my my the guy who I ended up changing my life, and he was sitting there playing Scrabble at a Scrabble table. And I always describe him as like the more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club because that's he was just super jacked and just to paint a picture of how how this guy looked. And he could tell that I had no self-confidence, no self-esteem, that there was just something off with me emotionally and mentally with where I was at the time. And he was like, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. I was like, no way, man. Like, have you seen me? Like, I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like, there's no way... <laughs> that he was going to see me exercise with him. You know what I mean? Right. And not too long after that, I see him actually exercise and he's doing thousands of push-ups, hundreds of like pull-ups and stuff in the jail and, and running all over the place. I was like, who is this guy? This guy's like climbing the rails in there. I'm like, this guy's nuts. Is his real name Eric? I wanted to ask. Yeah, his real name is Eric. And Eric's, That's his actual name. Okay. Yeah. And was he, he was older than you? Because he'd done he a lot older. of time, right? Okay. Done, yeah, he had done some time. Okay. And like later on, um, I guess it was, might've been like not too long after that, I guess I should say, we were having a conversation in the cell and this conversation changed my life. And it gets back to the, the victim mindset that I kind of hinted at earlier in that we were sitting there and he's asking me more about my story. I guess like any pretend, like any coach would, right? I guess this guy ended up being my coach. He was asking me like, you know, why are you in jail? Why'd you get addicted to drugs? Like all these things. I started to blame everybody. I started to blame my mom, my dad, girls, um, people that bullied me, the sports teams I didn't make. I started to blame everything but myself. And he looked at me and he was like, quit being a bitch. Mm. And I was just mm. like, oh. Mm. Like, and it's just like, you don't want to be called that like no matter where you're at, right? right. And I was just like, well, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, I was kind of like, <laughs> why, why are you saying that to me? And he was like, you're blaming everybody else for your problems but yourself. He was like, you chose to respond to your circumstances the way you did. He was like, there's plenty of people that go through your circumstances and, and were dealt the hand that you were dealt that didn't play the hand that, like you did and they're not in jail. And I was like, yep. And he was like, you have two choices. You can be a man, look yourself in the mirror and say, you got yourself here. It's up to you to change. Or you can be a little bitch and go cry in the corner, say, woe is me and blame everybody else for your problems, but yourself. He was like, most people will take that route. And I think at that time, I just, you know, it's, it's funny, like people ask me like why that moment helped shape my, my life other than the, the, the shift in my mind. And I guess what I've come, come to realize is that sometimes I think when our face is like so, um, so far down in the mud and we can't see shit, can't see anything in front of, in front of us, we're hopeless, we're crippled with fear, uncertainty. We just assume that every other move we're going to make is going to be bad. So we just remain in this darkness. When you have this part, when you have this person 
who had like no skin in the game as far as my life come and like pull the back of my head up and just lift me out of the mud just a little bit that I could now see a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of light. It gave me a little bit of hope, not a lot, but it gave me a little bit enough hope to just say, man, I think maybe he's right. Like up until this point, like I don't have life figured out. I had 21 jobs at the time I was 21 damaged so many relationships. I would, my health was a mess. I was a complete um, drug addict, selling drugs, convicted felon, like all these things that I continued to justify and rationalize that I thought were okay because of my circumstance in my life. And I think that's a big mistake that people make. Like you can only blame your circumstances for so much, right? And I think that's what happens is, at least for me, I I used my, my circumstances as a reason to make all these other bad decisions in my life. And no matter what I did, even though my mom or my dad didn't have anything to do, to do with that decision, I'd be like, well, it's because of them, because of them, because of them. And then you start to realize like, man, this is, this feels good. Like I don't have to take any responsibility or ownership. And that becomes a pattern that becomes normal. And I had done a lot of that. So I'm now at this point in jail where I'm like, man, clearly this doesn't work. That's why when people ask me about like the victim mentality and why I'm so passionate about telling people that it doesn't work is because it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't like I tried it for so long. I know so many people that try it for so long and it's not until they break out of that and they stop freaking blaming everybody else for their problems, but themselves doesn't mean that what you didn't go through was bad. It doesn't mean that what happened to you wasn't horrible. Cause I'm sure like there's plenty of people whose situations were worse than mine, better than mine, but it gives you no chance to get, to get the very thing you want, which is like to be happy and to have some success and to feel better about yourself. If you continue to make decisions and then blame everybody else for your problems, but yourself. And, and so I go in front of a bunch of grown men and I finally decide to give exercise a try and I get down to do a pushup for my feet and I collapse and I look at my cellmate. I'm like, why can't I do a pushup? He's like, cause you're fat. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, um, <laughs> what? He's like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like you have excess belly fat. Your core is weak. You don't have any upper body strength. So you're collapsing to the ground. And I hated being called that word fat. I was called that a lot growing up. And I swore to myself that I'd never be called that again. And I remember like going and, and trying to walk up and down the steps there to kind of take a break from me not being able to do a push up and just being completely embarrassed. I could barely walk up and down the steps because I was just so out of shape just from the, all the stuff that I did in my body and then me, of course, smoking cigarettes, which completely crushes your um, endurance. And we, we set some goals that seemed like climbing Mount Everest at the time, which was like doing a set of 10 push-ups and running a mile by the time I left jail. But with his motivation and encouragement, training me in there every single day, I was able to do it. And I think as I, I look back, I think this is very important for people specifically in, in recovery is like, you got to focus on the small wins. Yeah. Like I'm not an AA or NA, but I know that one of the things that, pe- that, that sometimes can hold people back is they go into a room day one and somebody comes and speaks, who's got like 15 years of sobriety and they automatically go to, well, how am I going to stay sober for 15 years? I can barely, I barely walked into here without like using. Right. Yeah. And you just have to focus on small wins and, and not compare yourself to somebody else's journey. And I know that's cliche now, but it's so true, especially in recovery, because that's like something that trips a lot of people up is like looking at some of these people who have different lives than you or different journeys or different time timelines as far as sobriety or recovery. 
and then like comparing yourself to that. Can I say something? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comparison is the thief of joy. Like it's so bad. Like I, I, that's something I used to do so much. Just like compare myself to other people and it would just rob me of like so much. Well, cause then I think like self-confidence and self-esteem, like it's, it's all relevant. It's all relevant, right? It's all relative. Like you, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't imagine like the self-esteem that came from me like, that I, that I developed from doing one push up, one push up. It seems like the dumbest thing in the world, right? To, like how, how good I felt about myself to be able to, be able to do one push up. But would that one push up do that? That led to me being motivated and having some faith in myself to go do it, to do two push-ups, three push-ups, because I had finally faced that fear and doing the thing that I didn't think I could, which was doing a push-up. And then I achieved it. I was like, oh, like it wasn't so bad. Even when I couldn't do it, it wasn't as bad as I thought, because I think that sometimes we, the, the, the fear of like the outcome of the, we always like are more scared of whatever the outcome is than the actual fear itself. Like meaning like my, one of my biggest fears up until like my mid twenties really was like publicly asking a girl out mortified because I thought that if I went and asked a girl out and she said, no, that meant every other girl was going to say no to me. So that my fear of the outcome, like my, I just future trip so much that it became more than just asking a girl out and bringing it back to jail. Like that's kind of what had happened to me. And once I got over that, and once I realized, wow, it's not that bad. Like people aren't, people really don't care if I can't do a push up. They're not really laughing at me. They're actually now encouraging me. I started to stack all these small wins. And then I felt like I climbed up Mount Everest when I got to the point where I could do 10 push-ups and run a mile because it gave me something to shoot towards. And that's why I think fitness is so important for people in recovery. Because in recovery, like it's almost like you're defaulted to look back on your past because a lot of times, you know, whether you're in a 12-step program or you're in therapy, you're you're going backwards and looking at all right, like what happened? Who do I have to apologize to? Like, what shouldn't I have done? Like, who do I need to like make amends with? Like, where could I have done differently? But fitness, fitness keeps you going forward. You're setting goals, you're achieving goals, and you're starting to stack these small wins on top of each other. And, and that was crucial for me at a time where I needed it most because I learned how to like reattach behavior to emotion. I talk about this a lot because I, I've spoken about like my main reason, and I believe for my addiction was my mismanagement of my emotions and pain that I didn't know how to deal with. You know, it was like, I was anxious, get high, depressed, get high, stress, get high. And now I found fitness, which helped, was a tool, a tool in my life to help me um, manage some of that pain. And then also there's so many parallels, as you know, with fitness to where now I'm getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm just developing some self-discipline. Right. I'm feeling good about myself. And that carried on with me throughout not only my sentence, but obviously to what I'm doing now. And the day I left, I cried. Like I cried when I left jail, which is so ironic. Like, I never thought in a million years that I would cry when I left. And it was because I had this guy, Eric, who chose to help save my life before saving his. I mean, he passed away earlier this year. And he did? Yeah. Did he, did he get out or was he like, what, what, what happened like after that? Did he get out or did he stay in the cycle? Or yeah. What? So like I, so I left jail and I asked him the day I left, I was like, how can I ever repay you? And he was like, don't mess up and pay it forward. And I was like, all right, man, like whatever, like I'm good. I'll be good. And he gives me a workout plan that I still have. It's sitting over there. So I framed, so I never forget where I came from. And then we, we exchanged some letters and we actually, when he got out, we would, we worked out a few times and, and then he kind of, just went down a different path than me, I guess I could say. Was he a drug addict? 
Yeah, yeah, he was an addict as well. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, it was just, I think there's a lot of ups and downs in his life. And oh, um, no. I'd actually been trying, wanted to get him on my, on my podcast because I was like, this would be cool. Like everybody's yeah. heard my side of the story with him, but I was like, man, I would love to be able to interview him, like to tell, have him tell the story of what it has done for him. Cause I know that it meant a lot that I was able to turn my life around and he was like the, the catalyst for that. And yeah, I, I had, um, his mom had reached out. Do you know so, how he passed away? Huh? Do you know how he died? I don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think I, I don't remember exactly what that said i mean i i think it was something with his liver or something okay um i don't know 100 percent sure did he know uh, that you wrote the book and dedicated oh, it oh yeah to yeah him? he, he, he knew all that, that stuff. okay yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. okay um and so he was like man it's funny how like he inspired me and now i was inspiring him but i spoke at his funeral and i and honestly like the biggest thing that has come with all of this of me sharing my story on podcasts and everything i've been doing about it has been that like i got like a phone call i got message like, some messages after he died of like of people who were thankful that they heard me talk about him in like a good way. Like they saw like the old version of him that they knew. And it just was one of the hardest things that I've had to go through was like getting that news. But when I got these messages from his family, like I was just so moved because I never, you never think that you never think some of these things that you do are going to add up that the way they, they end up adding up. Right. And I never, I, I didn't expect to lose him so quickly, but I also didn't expect his family to go back and like, listen to podcasts that I was on where I told the story yeah. and, then, and then go into the funeral and telling the story in front of his family. And it was, it was humbling. It was hard, but you know, I've often quite like the one question I've always asked is like, why me? You know, why did he choose me? Like there's, there's so many people in jail, you know, it's like, why me? And, um, that's why I show up and I do what I do now because I'm really thankful that I'm alive. I mean, I, I yeah. lost a lot of people that have been close to me um, because of addiction. And I was just so inspired and encouraged by what he did for me that it, it got me back on the, the path that I knew I should have been on. I lost a bunch of weight when I got out of jail, uh, became a personal trainer. And the rest is kind of history, I guess. I've written a few books along the way and got the podcast, Felony came off my record of um doing some yeah some I, I want to go i want to go there so you got out of jail yeah. sorry my husband yeah. was texting me updates about the dog that's why nate and i, I started laughing. yeah he's, <laughs> he's obsessed with the dog he good. um uh yeah he is obsessed with the dog oh, but yeah. it's very sweet to see no, no, my cute. husband it's with cute. the dog it's, it's so cute. cute um okay so you got out of jail i had a question for you did people think when they showed up to get you because your dad got you did you look different immediately when you got out yeah. So when my dad got me when I got bailed out um, and no, I didn't look, I mean, I just gotten bailed out, but when I got out for good, I, my, my, some of my friends came to pick me up and I was, I was, I had surprised because I had surprised people because I think my, my date to get out was like later than it was because, you know, with good behavior and I got a job like midway through my sentence where I was like, I forget, I think I was like washing the tables or something and you get time off for that as well. But I really didn't tell, I only told a few people I was getting out. I wanted to surprise people because I had, I'd had this transformation. I wanted to show people that I was a completely different per person. And I wasn't allowed, you know, I still wasn't kind of allowed in my mom's house without her there when I got out of jail. So her, her relationship and our relationship was kind of still like on the rocks. And my dad, I think was away at the time, but I, I when I got out, I, I really, I didn't want to spend time with my dad. I didn't want to go back home because I, I learned to realize 
like as much as I started to take responsibility for my choices, my reactions, I knew that like that wasn't a good environment for me to try to like flourish. So my grandparents took me in after I got out of jail and they had some ground rules that really helped save my life. And it was like this perfect blend of boundaries and love, you know, like they were like, you know, you're going to take care of yourself. You're going to work out. You got to get a job and you're going to make your bed. You're going to keep your shit straight. Um, we'll give you money for stuff. You got to bring, you got to bring us receipts. You know, you don't have to pay rent. Like they gave me like stuff I needed to survive, but they also were like, if you mess up, like you're out, like you're done. Cause I lived there before and it was, <laughs> it was a crazy situation. I was like sleeping in until like three o'clock and they're having like workers come over and they're like, why is your grandson like asleep? And, like, you know what I mean? Like, so get us from there to where you are now. So you started on your, you started yeah. working at a liquor store, but then you wanted to get into fitness. So how did you yeah. get to where you are now where you have this huge training business? Man, it's, it's crazy. Um, it's funny. I actually ran into the guy who, the HR guy who gave me a chance and like was played a role in hiring me today at Trader Joe's this morning when I was um, getting some groceries. I hadn't seen him in years. Trader Joe's is awesome. For the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got out of jail with my grandparents, get this job at this liquor store. And the, the job was like, it was fine. Like I made good money. I had great benefits. I began to get comfortable talking to people because people would come in. And, and, and as I began to work there and from the time that between I got out of the jail and the time it took me to get a job, because again, when you're a convicted felon, it takes you time to get a job. I started to get more fit, right? So I began to get more like comfortable in my own skin, had some self-confidence. Like people were kind of like, oh my God, you have such big muscles. Like when I carry out like cases of like liquor for people that it, it gave me a little pep, put a little pep in my step, right? But I also started to get this urge of like, man, like fitness has helped me so much. Like I bet you I could, share the gifts that I've been given, like pay it forward, like kind of pass on the torch that Eric had given me. And, but I, but I also had no, I had no idea how to be a trainer. Like I just knew what I knew from what Eric had taught me. And then from some of the magazines I began, began reading or like Arnold's encyclopedia bodybuilding, which is like sitting right here too, that I started to read when I was younger, but I was like, man, it's just worth a shot. So I go to this gym, this local gym, the Maryland athletic club. And I go and I, I apply for a job and I tell my story about like losing weight and how it's changed my life and a passion I was about fitness. And the manager at that time was all over. She's like, oh my God, like, this is awesome. And then I was like, well, there's something I need to tell you. And then I told him, I'm like, I'm a convicted felon. And they were like, what? I was like, yeah. And I kind of, I told him, I was like, listen, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pee in a cup every day. I swear I won't mess, I won't mess up. I swear, like I found my new passion and purpose. Like I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get this job and 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 make you guys proud. So after going back and forth with HR and like kind of submitting different documents, like legal documents that I had had, they gave me a shot. They were like, we're gonna give you a shot. And I kind of I ran with it. I found this new high of helping people because I could connect with a lot a lot of these people. Cause you know, a lot of these people. We're trying to use fitness in the same way that I use drugs. Like a lot of these people felt insecure. They were depressed. Um, they just, they were unhappy with the way they looked in the mirror. They were, they had stuff going on at home, whatever it was. And they were like trying to use fitness to either, you know, lose weight, gain weight, improve their health, whatever it was to help, you know, deal with some of the stuff that was going on inside. Right. And I could relate to all of that. You know, so I could have these deep conversations where I, I understood where they were coming from and people related to me. And then 
I started to organically over time, like weave in my story of how I got into fitness and people really respected me for it. And word got, like word kind of traveled and um, I became like the, the top producing personal trainer in my first full year as a trainer at this club, which there was like three locations at the time. They had a, a lot of successful trainers. And so it was quite an honor. And I, I just felt like, I felt like I was in flow for like the first time in my life where things were just naturally happening because I had just found something I was really good at, something I, I loved and I was passionate about and things just started to, to connect. And then one of my clients was an attorney. And so at this point, like as I'm talking, sharing this part of the story now, it's like right around the end of, I guess, towards the end of 2013, where my, my probation was up because I never failed a drug test, did all my community service, did all this stuff. And it was my kind of my time to write that letter to the judge to see if he would grant me modification of my sentence. And so we wrote a letter and he granted me my day in court. And in January of 2014, he took the felony conviction off my record and gave me the PBJ. And I started to, to kind of first full, like not, I never, and I didn't really believe in God at this point, but I kind of, in a way, was this is weird because the day I went to court, I was on the front page of the health and fitness section of the Baltimore Sun here because I had done some stuff to, uh, I was training college kids and the Sun wanted to come and know what the, like the workout trends were for college kids. And they came and filmed or filmed and took some pictures and stuff of us working out. And, and so that was um, like featured on that health and fitness section. So my, the lawyer who was representing me was like, see your honor, like I told you, he's changed. Like, look <laughs> at this, right? And the judge was like, how the hell did you do this? So, you know, he's kind of oh, like, that's that's really but cool. I never, that's rad. Yeah, I never realized like how much my life could change from being shackled as a felon to now being a free man and being able yeah. to do all these things that I couldn't do before. And I got really inspired and that's what led me to write my first book from felony to fitness to free to give people hope and inspire people to make the most of their, of their second chance. And then like, you would think that the rest is history. My life was just perfect after that. And it wasn't like, you know, after I wrote that book, I hit another point where I didn't, I didn't relapse, but I hit a point where I had a, I had a big struggle, which was it's, you know, people, they often ask, like, is there anything anybody could have done for you when you were a kid that would have led you down a different path? And when I was a kid, I, I think these things is what I, I, th I thought these are the things I would have wanted, which were have a pretty girlfriend, have a six pack and make great money. Right. And in my twenties, as, as being a, a successful trainer, I was super ripped. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, chasing after pretty girls. Like I had some of those things, I had those things and I still wasn't happy. And I was even more miserable and unhappy because I felt like I was lied to. I felt like I was sold this bill of goods where I, I was, I thought that like happiness for a guy comes from, you know, dating pretty girls, making great money and being ripped. And I had those things. And I was like, where's the happiness? It's not there. And I was like, this sucks. And it forced me down this spiritual journey to becoming a Christian and I, I tell this story because this was a big turning point in my life too, with making, um, making peace with a lot of my past. And that one of my clients at the time was, this is like a, I think this was like a year or two, or I, I, I don't know the exact, remember the exact date. It was right before I, I, I wrote Faith Family Fitness, which is my second book. But one of my clients was an, a pastor at a non-denominational church. 
And he kept asking me to come to church. And I was like, dude, I'm going to hell for putting you through this workout. Like, there's no way I'm, I'm, I belong in church. And my idea of God was like, all right, if you're good, you go to heaven, you're bad, you go to hell. And I'm like, I'm already on the highway to hell. So what's, what's the point of even like trying to go the other path? And plus, I was like, if God is so good, and he's real, then why did I go through what I went through? And I, I so I had this hatred towards religion and God. And I, I had all like I had all these other things figured out. And I one of my mentors, ironically, he was in San Diego. We were having a conversation. And he was like, dude, you have all this stuff going for you. You have all these good things about you. Like you need some sort of spirituality in your life. And um, he was like, you know, you're, I think you're just missing this part. And and so I started to get these tugs like from him, my client. And then on top of that, I had just continued to uh, go down this rabbit hole of seeking validation from women. Like I would like, you know, get the attention of a girl. As soon as I got it, it was like next, 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 next. And I just was so unhappy that I kind of had this breaking point where I finally called my client and I was like, I think I'm ready to like give this Jesus thing a try. And it's so funny because when I told him this, I felt like I just told him he won the mega millions, like the lottery. I was like, why is this guy so happy? It's just so bizarre. <laughs> but I went into his office and we prayed like, you know, this prayer about, you know, Jesus being my savior and stuff like that. And I, I started to cry because I felt this same monkey come off my back that I felt with drugs. I called my mom for the first time and truly apologized. And I began to understand that while I wasn't proud of all the choices that I made, God was because now he's like using a lot of that stuff to not only help me, but for me to help other people. And that inspired me to write my second book, Faith, Family, Fitness. I think the books that I've written, it, it's kind of funny because they've been a reflection of where I was at that point in my life. Yeah. Felony to Fitness to Free, I wrote when I had just you know, gotten the felony off my record. Faith, Family, Fitness, I became a Christian and became really like passionate about that side of things where I was trying to share some of the lessons I had learned in my own spiritual journey. And then The Heart of Recovery, which is my third book, I wrote at a time where the drug epidemic was pretty bad. Like, I mean, before the last several years, like people were talking about the drug epidemic a lot. And I was just like, man, that like this isn't working. Like, like this isn't, and I saw people that I knew in recovery, they were just miserable. And I was just like, man, like I'm like, I wasn't like perfect or happy, but I was, I was constantly working on myself. Like I had the, I had goals. I was starting to, to write books. And so I was like trying to find like people that were thriving and doing really well in recovery. And like, well, what were the common things that made them successful. And also like, could there be different paths? Because I went to jail. I never went to A or NA. I know that was like a big path and treatment for a lot of people. And so I just wanted to get a diverse group of opinions. So I sought after and interviewed a bunch of people. 50 ended up making it into the book, but there were more I interviewed. Um, and I asked them like the, all the same five questions. It was like, you know, what do you need, you know, what do you do on a daily basis to maintain your recovery or sobriety? It was like, what types of people do you hang out with? What's your spiritual life, life like? What's your fitness routine like? And um, like, what was your breaking point? Because I believed, and I was like, if, if, if this has worked for me and it's worked for others, I think that in order to be, I mean, I don't want to say successful in recovery, but to, to kind of keep moving forward, you have to surround yourself with great people and not just like, people in recovery, but people that are actually like doing something with their lives, you know, I think, cause that's like part of like the next phase of recovery isn't just getting into recovery. I think that's great. But like, now you have to take some steps to rebuild your life and yourself, you know, from where it was. Right. 
and fitness, obviously, I think it's so important for people to take care of their health when they're in recovery. And I don't, it doesn't have to be like what I do. Like a lot of these people, their, their routines were different. Spirituality I, I knew was important. And again, it wasn't necessarily you had to be a Christian or super religious, but it was something where you believed that there was something else out there other than yourself, like guiding you on the path. So were like, there, what, what were the common, you said you wanted to find, or, and these are the commonalities, like the spiritual, yeah. like this is what you found to be the commonalities of people that were successful, feeling successful in recovery, people that you hung around, fitness, spirituality. Yeah. Okay. I think that there has to be some, some level of spirituality. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be, I mean, just from what I found from talking to these people, it doesn't have to be anything like significant where you're going to like church or you're like reading the Bible or anything like that. Cause I think when people hear spirituality or anything like that, that's where their mind goes. Right. But I think there has to be like something where you feel connected to something greater than yourself. Right. Because as, as addicts, sometimes all we like to think about is ourselves, right? We think it's all about us. We think the world revolves around us and it's just, it's just not the way life is. Right. And then community, I think is important. Um, because again, like and I, I might get some pushback for saying this. I think there's some people in recovery that can hold you back that are just content. If you're somebody who maybe has a vision for like doing something like greater than what you're doing now and, and like moving forward and maybe like, like, you know, Janine, I know you opened a studio, like doing stuff like that. There might be some people that are just content with just being like sober, which again, I'm not judging anybody for that, but they might say to you, well, dude, like, you know, you just got to work, worry about your sobriety. Like that comes first and that does come first, but sometimes that can hold you back from like, do, like, from like doing things that you could do. And like the person you could have become had you have like gotten past that. Right. right? And, and then the fitness component, I think is super important because I think fitness is like one of the easiest ways to find new community. I think fitness is one of the easiest ways. I think I touched on this earlier to, to move your life forward with goals to deal with um, your emotions and then like rebuild your health and start to feel good about yourself. And, and so all of that to say, obviously, I also wanted to highlight that it wasn't just people who went to AA or NA that were in the book. There were so many different paths. I even had somebody I think I interviewed in there that's still like used in moderation because I just wanted to highlight that like, dude, it doesn't matter like what you're doing, as long as it's working for you, right. you know, don't judge somebody for their path. Right. right? Um, and so that was the essence of that book. And then I, I started to understand how many people were connecting with my story and what I was talking about that I began to, to share it on a more public and national level. I actually hired a publicist back in, I think it was the back, back in the end of 2000, the end of 2018, some, somewhere around then, because I just knew I was like, man, like, I think the timing's great. I think my story's different and think people would resonate with it. And, um, you know, he did a great job and ended up getting the, um, getting the today show to come and spend two days with me. Here. Oh, wow. Oh, did, that's like, so a little, cool. Yeah. Like a video, I guess like a video documentary thing about my story, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, and then that led to other things and being on podcasts and, and then during the pandemic, like a lot of things got shut down. Right. And I'm a trainer. So, you know, a big part of my business got shut down. And then like right before the pandemic, I had, I had had this vision to start this podcast called the adversity advantage, because like, I don't think adversity is what destroys people. I think it's the response. I think if this has been a theme of what I've said. And I, again, I don't, I'm not here to say that people's situations aren't bad because I mean, trust me, like I hear stories and I'm like, I can't imagine what you've been through. 
all I'm saying is I know that in order to get through it, you have to develop some level of equanimity and make decisions that move you through that in a way that doesn't make your situation bad. Like the person who gets divorced, you know, and they go and they drink alcohol, like two bottles of wine every day to deal with the divorce. And then 10 years from now, you know, their relationship with their kids is messed up. They don't have a job. They don't have all these things. Like the divorce isn't what wrecked them. The response is what wrecked them. Yeah. And that's a hard truth, I think, for people to hear because like, I, for me, like that was something I had to deal with was I, I was always justifying my behavior based on my circumstances. And there's other situations where people, you know, go through hard times and then they just use that as an excuse to self-sabotage, which is, again, I don't, I'm not shaming or judging anybody from, for their choices, but it's just reality that like a lot of times what happens is that the problem goes from like a level, you know, five problem, it's like a level 10 problem based on how we choose to respond to that. And so it's just been, it's been quite a journey. I'm super blessed to be where I am today. I mean, I'm very thankful that everything happened in the way it has, and and it hasn't been easy. I mean, there's been a lot of challenges that have come with it, but I'm I'm super grateful. I love that, that it's not the incident. It's the response. It's not the incident that can do you in. It's the response, you know, it is. That's so true. And I, I like how you said that. Um, right. and it's, a, it's a hard truth, I think, for people to hear, because I think I think a lot of times when we're in these moments and I can, I can I'm speaking from my own personal experience. But when we're in those moments and we have such low self-esteem when you have low self-esteem, it's really hard to take accountability because you're already feeling so low about yourself to where you were to, to the point where if you admit that you did anything um, wrong in your life that brings your self-esteem like down even lower. Yeah. But, but, but by the same yeah. token, I, and this is why I love even just the title of your show, the adversity advantage. And I know our messages resonate so well because yeah. like right now, so a bunch of bullshit just happened with my studio. You know, a little bit about it. I've told you about it. basically it got shut down and I don't own it anymore, which is great, you know, and it's been my refuge for eight years, the clients I love. And I know that people are very cons- like my clients are super worried. I think that they're gonna, that I'm gonna relapse. Like nobody's really saying that, but they're kind of saying that. Like they're like, I need to hear from you, and for legal reasons, I'm a little bit limited in what I'm saying to them. But they're like, I need to hear from you. I need to know that you're okay. And I know that what's behind it is like, holy shit, is Jean gonna relapse because I'm so open about my story? But like, there's no way because I know that. The incidents does the incident doesn't make me use right. It's my response, and so I'm super bummed out about the studio, of course. But I'm not right. going to use behind it, you know, because many things have happened in my life that I did use behind, and it just made things worse. And I've now learned that, and so I think like taking responsibility for your response being what destroyed you ultimately gives you more power because i did the same thing like i used to do coke and listen to sad music and think about my dad and how much i missed him and because he was gone i was going to use forever and like but at some point it became a way to just keep using as i got older like initially that was maybe a fair response because i was truly sad but later i knew it was just a way to keep using right i could continue to blame it on that but looking back knowing that it wasn't my parents' divorce that fucked me up. It was my response. Gives me power now to know that like, okay, my business closing or that business closing after I sold it isn't gonna isn't gonna ruin my life. My response could either move me forward or not. You know what I mean? And I learned that from adversity. That's how I got right. stronger. Yeah. 
and it's tough, right? Because I mean, thanks for sharing that. Because I think what happens is if somebody, they, people know so much about your story and what you've been through that now, like they see something like this, which is like a massive, right? You know, short-term roadblock for you with what you're going through. Their their right. immediate thought is like, oh my gosh, is he going to be okay? And that just means yeah. I think they they care about you a lot. And I think one of the other things I, I wanted to say that I I learned recently, you know, over the last, I guess more recently is like that you know, sometimes the best response you can have to some of this stuff is no response to just being able to sit yeah. in the pain yeah, and, and get quiet and just go within and being like, why is this bothering me so much? Like right. what's going on? And just being able to self-regulate and calm down because, you know, for, for the longest time, like I would always go to the gym or I'd go for a run when I was stressed. And I think obviously those are great. Like I don't ever want to tell somebody not to do that. But what I also found was that I, I couldn't sometimes just sit and get uncomfortable with the discomfort. Right. And that's been something that I've been trying to implement um, over the last few years is like when something happens, like get quiet, chill, like take some time to like process it. Because I, I do want to say that, you know, we've been talking about like choices and responses and behavior and how we handle certain things. You know, also, I also want to acknowledge that you definitely should like grieve and heal yeah. and take care of yourself during those times, because that's important too. Like in my opinion is just taking some time, acknowledging what you're going through, Yeah. but like setting like a time frame. Like I was talking to somebody the other day, the other day where they, you know, they kind of had a, somebody had told them that like, all right, you can do something for this amount of time. But after that amount of time, like that's it. Yeah. You get this time to, and, and you know, you have to find what works for you, but you get what I'm saying because otherwise you just start to prolong like a lot of the inevitable right. of like facing this stuff and, and making changes. And then like, you don't do anything. And then, you know, you look back and like a year's gone by and like, you're still in the same spot. Yeah. Like, is that really productive? Like, are you really doing yourself a favor by acting like that? Right. Right. So I have one more question for you. Yeah, go for it. When you're talking about going in and being still, do you have like a meditation or a spiritual practice that you recommend or do? Um, I mean, I wish I was like, yeah, there's a five-step process. I, I think there's a few things. One, I, I, when it comes to getting out of a rut, I do have a kind of a process that I think it's important for people to, to understand. And again, you, you can take this, people can take this and find what works for them. Like the, the first thing, like if I'm going through a bad time, the first thing is like self-awareness. So it's like being aware of my, like what I'm going through. Is my energy off? Am I, am I sleep off? Am I depressed? Am I anxious? Am I stressed? Whatever it is, like be aware. And then the second part, which I think is the, like, I mean, this is, I think that these, the second two is, is all, is, is equally important, but um, acceptance is the second part. Because I think a lot of times what happens is we go through something like this um, and we expect that life's just going to be easy after we get into recovery. We expect because we're in the self-help world and working on ourselves that anxiety is going to be gone. Depression is going to be gone. There's going to be days where we're not stressed and it's, it's all going to be happy and you know happy ever after, right? And it's just not true. And I think because of that, people feel like they're alone and that they're the only ones who are suffering or struggling in that time. And so they just use it as an excuse to like go down this victim spiral and then end up making, you know, decisions that aren't aligned with who they want to be. So the second part is accepting it. And then the third part is action, which is um, 
like doing things that will make you feel better about yourself that are also aligned with your, your, your higher, the highest version of you and that are healthy. Right. And so that's where like some of these things come in, like where I say, like, you know, sometimes the best thing might be to go for a walk with your dog. Sometimes the best thing might be to listen to a podcast or call somebody or watch. I mean, I love comedy, so I'll watch like comedy when I want to laugh or something that kind of gets your mind off of whatever it is you're going through temporarily to help like the, the pain, like subside a little bit. Yeah. And you can kind of get back to a place of logic and and start to think more clearly about like what's going on, how you can respond and then just adjust. Like, I think the last A would be adjust, like based on like how, how you live and certain things. But as far as like getting still and getting quiet, I mean, I'll just literally close my eyes and I'll put on some like spiritual music or I'll put on some like, I don't know, some like slow music that you would hear like at a dance when I was a kid, you know, some kind of like, yeah lower music and i'll just think and i'll just let my thoughts go through me i'll just let things happen and i'll just begin to either say nothing or i'll start to tell myself like this is going to pass this is going to pass like everything's going to be okay everything's going to be okay and then it normally is right right? I, i think our biggest fear sometimes is that we think that this, the, the moment that we're in is going to be that way forever because that's how we're wired for survival in that way. And the, and the last thing I kind of want to say, and I think it goes back into the, the three-step process with accepting that life's going to always be good is that I think there's this big lie in the recovery community that recovery is easy. Recovery is not easy. Recovery sucks sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a journey and it's hard I mean, and it's, it's, it's very worth it, but like recovery, like it gets, life gets real when you get into recovery because now like you don't have these um, coping mechanisms that you've been using to just drown out your pain and emotions for however, however long you were using stuff. And now you have to get clear on where you want to go in your life. Now you have to get clear on like certain things that you have to go back in your past and make amends with. And you also have to figure out like some sort of plan yeah now you're going to move forward and not make the same mistakes again and so yeah. I, I just want to encourage people that if they're having a hard time in recovery it doesn't mean it's not working necessarily it doesn't mean that it's not worth it it just means that it's normal I and mean, recovery right. is going to be super messy specific, especially the first few years yeah 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 i agree with that do you have any questions uh no not not really any questions i mean i definitely relate to you a lot um i mean my parents, my relationship with my parents, it's better now, but I mean, my mom left when I was five. And so I remember like, why is me, why is all this bad stuff happening? You know, and was like on the pity party. And I mean, I still, I started self-harming at a very early age, you know, and to try to like, I don't know, it took the pain away. It gave me something else to focus on. It was very sad. I was, I was kind of a heavier kid for a little bit until I got into high school. But really? I, yeah, for a little bit. For a, for a, I was I just kept baby fat for a really long time in high school. I got really skinny, but I never had any self confidence. Never like there's just never a confident guy. I always thought there was just something ineptly wrong with me. You know what I mean? I don't I don't know if that ever makes sense. And different things happened, like you said, with sports and stuff like that, that made me feel the same way. And then when I got into recovery, like it was so weird because like I was, I guess a good. I guess I was a good. I don't know. I was just. I don't know how to say this without saying arrogant. Like, 
I had a little confidence and then I started going to the gym and stuff and I got in shape and like got fit, but then I my teeth were all messed up and I was like, oh, so I felt like, oh, like I, I'm, I'm attractive and I'm fit, but then if I smile, I have these messed up, it was like a whole, pro, it was like a whole process of like going through that from like yeah. the substance use from like messing up my teeth. It was, oh, it was the worst thing. It was so bad. And then I, so I had to go through that. Um, but I definitely relate to like the confidence thing and like not being good enough or worthy and just and like oh I, I and then the relationship with my mom. I mean I still don't even have a relationship with my mom to this day, so like I totally get it. I was gonna ask you that. I didn't know that for yeah. one. Oh wait, I think I did know that yeah. about your mom. But what is the relationship like with your mom now? Oh, it's great. My relate my mom and I are, are, are pretty close now. I mean oh, it took you are. a lot okay. of work, took a lot of time. Yeah, it took a lot of I was going to say, when you wrote the book, it still wasn't good. Because I, oh, and I read your book last night, and I was like, hmm, yeah, I wonder wasn't. where it is now. Yeah, it's a lot better. I mean, it took okay. some time. It took some hard conversations. It took um, dropping my ego a bit. You know, because I think um, when it comes to forgiveness, like, it's funny, like, and, and, and saying you're sorry. Like, for the longest time, I wanted to tell my mom I was sorry. But I was like, I'm not saying sorry until you say sorry. Right. I was waiting on for that moment for like the longest time. I was like, say you're sorry. And I'll say, I'm sorry. But it, you know, it's just like, that gets you nowhere. So like when I said I was sorry and I, I truly apologize, like she started to open up more and we started to have this great dialogue about, about stuff, about how we could have handled things differently and that sort of yeah. thing. And um, I actually helped, you know, walk her down the aisle when she got remarried. Oh, that's and, so cool. Yeah, yeah. And so we're, she was up, you know, last, last week and I got to see her um a few times so i mean because she lives in florida now but yeah we're, we're pretty close now and it's great but again it's just taken time and understanding that everybody's on their own journey with it and just because i feel better about myself and the situation doesn't necessarily mean that she has to completely right. drop everything that she's thought about with me and trust me again right and i think that's something that people struggle with is that once they I mean, you see this a lot, I think, in early recovery and sobriety where people get like a month sober and their parent, their family or people still haven't forgiven them or trusted them. And I'm like, well, wait, like the last 15 years, you've been proving right. to them why they can't trust you. And you expect because you're now feeling you're on like, you know, the cloud nine because you're in your first month of recovery that right. they should just trust you. Like it takes right. time. And it took me accepting that maybe she wasn't meant to be in my life. And it was a hard thing to accept not not that I was going to cut her out but I was like all right like the only thing I can control is working on myself changing my behaviors coming to terms with things and then she can like work on herself and then at the same time of working on herself see what I'm doing see the changes I'm making and then hopefully she we kind of can come back together right but if not like I guess that's just the unfortunate thing of the way it could have worked out and thankfully it didn't because I think what happens is people are like begging the, the people to come back before they're ready. And then they start to like try to manipulate and then they start to get angry because now they're not getting, they're not getting their way as addicts. Like we always want our way, right? We're used to manipulating and we're trying to get our way with, with that kind of relationship. And because we don't get our way, we, we throw like a hissy fit sometimes. And that makes the situation worse. Cause now they're like, Oh my God, this person hasn't changed. Like you're right. still like throwing temper tantrums and acting the same way they did before. And it just makes things worse. So I just encourage people, A, don't be afraid to like authentically, if you really feel like you have to apologize, like say you're sorry. Right. Like you're going to feel a lot better. I've never heard anybody regret saying they were sorry for something. Anyone. Yeah. I, I mean, 
you know, there's, there's certain things that, that happen in situations where you might say sorry to somebody and they end up kind of, you know, doing you wrong later on, but you still don't, you still don't, you know, regret, you still feel better. You're like, man, I'm glad I say sorry. Cause I at least got to own my side of the street. Right. right. And and also like the thing is, is that you just got to work on yourself and it takes time. And some, some people respond longer than others or take some, some people take longer to, to respond to situations than others and just keep going. That's all I can tell people to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, where can everybody find you? So I guess that the best place to find me is dougbopes.com, which is my website it has links to my books, the podcast, um, more stuff about me. And then I'm pretty active on Instagram at Doug Bobes, TikTok at Doug Bobes, and then the podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and as well as we're on YouTube as well. Do you post all your shows on YouTube, the full video version? Oh, you yeah. do? Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Wow. That's a goal of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, I don't think I did at the beginning. Yeah. I've got them all saved and I need to edit them and post them. But um, do you have anything else? No. no. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Of course. I loved your book. It was so good. Now I want to read the next two, though. I thought I would start with the first one because I wanted to talk to you about, like, kind of your origin story, right? And I figured, like, th this was that. But I'm yeah. looking forward to reading the next two also. And I'm looking awesome. forward to doing your show next week. Yes. 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 She's Janine was the fastest booker on my podcast I've ever had. She, like, set the Guinness Book of World Records. I sent her a link, and within, like, 11 seconds she's like i already i just booked the time <laughs> I get to see that. <laughs> i was excited and i was on my phone because i'm always on my phone yeah. so the second it came in i was like oh beep beep got it <laughs> yeah well, i'm excited to have you on cool well thank you so much doug i really appreciate it yeah thank you